back in the first shed. This is Trapping Today. Jeremiah Wood here. Thank you for listening in. It's good to have you. We are brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com, where you can get all your trapping supplies, a wide selection of baits and lures, traps, snares, and all kinds of other accessories that you need for the trap line. Uh, thanks, Cots Bros, for supporting the podcast for such a long time. And we're also brought to you by OnX. Use the Hunt app on the trap line, out hunting, fishing, doing whatever uh, to basically turn your phone into a GPS, not just GPS, but the most uh, powerful dynamic tool that you can use out there in the woods to figure out where you're at and what's around you. Uh, I love to use it to scout um, with aerial imagery, updated aerial imagery, a really high quality resolution. You can also get super up-to-date lower resolution imagery. You can get landowner information in most areas. You can tell where public land is, private land. You can get the actual info on the private landowners who who own those different parcels of land, where the parcel boundaries are. So it can help you find permission. It can help you stay where you're supposed to be. And you can also run, uh, uh, record your tracks, show where you've been, uh, record your trap locations so that you make sure you don't forget where you put all your traps and uh, you run a more efficient trap line. So on X is uh, just an incredible tool. I use it a lot also when I'm setting up a trap line in order to help properly space the distance between my traps relative to the habitat and relative to how I'm, I'm running the line. So go to onxmaps.com and use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, when you check out and you're going to get 20% off of your first purchase. That helps you and it helps me as well and I really appreciate it. Onxmaps.com, code TRAP. All right, let's get into the show. It's going to be a kind of a short episode here, a bit of an update because it's been a while since I've been on, and I just wanted to kind of touch base with everybody and and uh, let you know I'm still here. Uh, every, been trying to get one, get an episode up in the last couple of weeks, but it always seems like something comes up at the last minute. And I'm not able to do it, so I finally just said, ah, I better sit down and and record something. If I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. So uh, not a lot on the agenda, but we'll go over a few different things. The first thing that I wanted to catch up with is uh, a little bit on the upcoming Fur Harvesters auction. That's going to take place on the 22nd to the 24th of March. So a little over a month from the time that I'm recording this. And they just updated their auction quantities and order of sale. So as uh, is pretty typical, there's going to be like a, a variety of items on the, on the first day of the sale, the Friday. It's going to be more like specialized items like wolf, wolverine, black bear, grizzly, and uh, a bunch of the smaller species species that are a little bit of a less of mainstream and a little bit of dressed fur as well. And then the big part of the auction is going to be Saturday, and then they're going to kind of wrap it up on Sunday. It's interesting how they've kind of changed the order of sales over the years, depending on where the market is at. And typically, you know, Saturday is going to be their big day where where most of the uh, volume and price overall overall number of dollars is going to be auctioned off um, for the entire weekend. And kicking it off, very first thing on Saturday is going to be the beaver. So... Looking back at the the last couple of sales, last March uh, and last May, uh, I was looking back at the 
quantities of beavers that were offered in those sales. And it was kind of interesting uh, in March, last March, so a year ago, um, around this time, the auction offered, they offered 30,000 beavers. And in this sale, the offering is going to be a quantity of about 45,000. Uh, following up in May, the uh, the auction uh, sold 40,000 beavers. So it'll be really interesting to see because the uh, like last year, the March offering of 30,000 beavers averaged 30 bucks overall, and uh, the May offering averaged uh, just under 29 dollars. So basically, with uh, 70,000 beavers sold. Uh, the demand was strong enough that the, uh, the the averages didn't really drop off at all, and the uh, the price kind of stayed the same. That's been one of the question marks here um, recently in the market is, is this demand robust enough to uh, withstand the increase in supply that uh, is, is resulting from, you know, more trappers harvesting beavers and, uh, and bumping up the supply that's being sold in the market? And uh, the second part of that question is how much is the supply actually going to increase? Because while it is, you know, pretty, it seems pretty lucrative when you go from selling beavers for an average of 12 to $15 and all of a sudden you're getting $30, it's like, oh man, that's pretty awesome. I'm going to go trap more beavers. But if you look back on long-term averages and you look at what we, what we got 10, 15 years ago, um, and if you factor in inflation and the cost of everything else that's gone up 40, 50% or more in that time frame, uh, actually a lot of stuff a lot more than that, you'll notice that we're actually, even at $30 beavers, we're making uh, quite a lot less than we did t uh, 12 to 15 years ago on the averages. So uh, it, it is an incentive having a better beaver price, but I don't know as it's that much of an incentive. And so even though we've got about 50% more beavers being offered at this sale, it's still 45,000. And uh, relative to, you know, used to be 60,000 was a pretty uh, pretty steady number. And there were multiple auctions that had that, um, multiple auction houses m multiple times a year. So it's still a relatively small number. It'll be very interesting to see if the demand holds up. It's It seems to be pretty good so far, but I suspect that uh, there was a lot of junk that got thrown into the beaver market last year because of uh, the demand for the hatter type beaver and the the um, amount of buyers that just needed beavers so bad that they weren't as picky and uh, as the buyers get less picky trappers tend to get less picky and less conscious about how they handle the pelts and uh, I think some of the buyers, um, the end end users of the furs that made their way through the market or kind of uh, realized that there is a difference. A beaver is a beaver is a beaver is maybe not a good uh, way to conduct business. You actually do have to pay a little bit of attention to what you're getting, how well that pelt was preserved. Um, you're buying it by the pound. Did, did a guy leave too much flesh on it? and not clean it up like you normally would because you'd get paid by the pound and because you didn't care about quality. Um, a lot of that took place. And uh, when when it all, it, it takes a year or so for that all to kind of work its way through the system and those furs to be processed and to be turned into an end product and for the 
um, buyers and, and the manufacturers to realize whether, you know, they did well or whether maybe they uh, should have been a little bit more uh, particular in how they bought. So it'll be good to see how that all plays out. But my guess is that maybe we're going to see a little bit, just a little bit more distinction between the grades of beaver and you may see a little more of a drop in the lower grades but I could be totally wrong it'll be it'll be good uh, very informative when that auction gets going to to figure that out um, if if the demand remains really high it may not matter because orders need to be filled and buyers don't get picky when orders are unfilled and they don't have a lot of alternative places to go to get those beaver pelts um, otter, 5,000 otter being offered. <clears throat> That'll probably do okay. Muskrat, they're going to be 300,000 muskrats, and I think they're going to be hard to sell. And I suspect those being held over for the last two auctions, most of them, I suspect that the price is going to go way down in order to clear out the muskrats. 6,000 Fisher, 35,000 Martin, I think those will sell really well. Um, I wasn't looking at it, but I'm going to go back to March of last year quickly just don't want to see how many martin there were at the last sale there were 28,000 so 28 to 35 we don't not a whole lot more uh, raccoon 15,000 raccoon that number is way 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 down and uh, that was let's see in March yeah that was 34,000 there were 34,000 raccoons offered in March 78% uh, of them ended up selling Averages between $2 and $8, depending on the section, or $9 for the best ones, depending on the section. The Eastern's got 2 bucks, the Western Heavy's got 9 But uh, we, we have uh, less than half of that being offered in this sale, so uh, people are, I think, kind of getting the hint that there's, there's not much sense in keeping raccoons and sending them to auction, unfortunately, in, in this market. Uh, what else we've got? We've got uh, 25,000 ranch mink, 20,000 coyotes. Those are going to be on Sunday. I think that's going to be kind of a boring cleanup sale. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of demand for coyotes. Uh, that 20,000 compares to uh, last year, uh, to 45,000 coyotes last March that were offered and a very relatively small percentage, only 60% of those sold last year. So, uh, yeah, the numbers are down. The numbers being offered are down. And I think that's an anticipation of much lower demand. One of the things the fur harvesters has stipulated is that they're not going to do private treaty sales after the end of this auction. So, um, people are not, buyers are not going to go into this thinking, oh, I can just uh, sit around and wait for the auction to end and then get this fur dirt cheap at the end after, after the auction's over. Uh, no, they're not going to play that way. Uh, they're going to uh, hold to the valuations they set, and probably there'll probably be some wiggle room there, depending on how the uh, things go in the auction room. And then if that doesn't sell, they're gonna they're gonna tack those on to the uh, the May sale and try to sell them then. So we'll see how it goes. It's a uh, it's a it's a much different fur market, uh, actually the past the fur market has evolved dramatically in the last decade and uh, it's it's continuing to change and it's much smaller uh, certain items uh, only a few items seem to be uh, bright spots at any given time 
and the remainder are continuing to be tough to sell. So we'll just see how it plays out. Uh, the good news is there is still there are still markets for certain fur items, and it's always good, uh, especially when you're you're trapping um, animals that need to be harvested for other reasons. It's good to know that you still have some sort of a market that you can sell those into. Okay, let's uh, move on. What else did I want to talk about here? I had a couple of listener questions. I don't particularly know how I'm going to, uh, or if I'm going to necessarily answer these that well. And, and uh, I have been a little bit lax in, in the Q&A department just because I haven't had an episode to, to sit down and answer questions recently. But I'm just going to pull up a couple of the more recent ones had one uh, from a guy, Jim, who uh, was, this was about a week ago, he's heading to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan to do a little beaver trapping next week. So that would be right about now, middle of February. So it seems like the weather's getting cra- crazier and crazier every year. It looks like I'll be trapping some spots that have gone from ice to open water, but will return to ice shortly. I tried to find some info on how this situation affects beaver trapping, but I couldn't really find anything. No need to write back. I know you're busy, but... Uh, um, Learned a lot uh, how to trap under ice from you. I appreciate the show. Hope you and your family are well. Thank you, Jim. Yes, the family and I are well, and I I hope you are well also. And glad to hear that you're going up there doing some trapping. And hope you get to listen to this podcast while you're up there. I don't know that I have anything good for you, but I would love to hear how you made out and how you did in your trip. I don't have a lot of great a great answer to this, but it is a very good question, and it is something that we should all give some thought to. Where the weather, I don't think any of us really knows for sure what's going on with the weather and what is driving everything. I know clearly we have an El Nino pattern this winter and, and there's a warmer air. It is working its way into uh, into different weather systems and, and creating a lot of weirdness. But that's kind of you know been happening. It's Things have been seemingly unpredictable from year to year for uh for for quite a while now i would say i'm thinking back to i've moved back here in northern maine i've been here been back here for uh almost 12 years 11 11 and a half years and i grew up here and i spent you know all my young life here of course it's hard to compare things from when you were a kid to it but but really i looking back this weather pattern we're in right now is something that hasn't taken place for a very long time i've talked with a lot of old timers and i i I have had one or two that do remember things like this uh one of them's in his 80s and one of them is uh like we had all this rain we got this past summer. The other guy, I don't know how old he is, but he, but they both were the only two people so far that I've been able to talk to who distinctly remember periods of time that were like this. And uh, the guy that's in his 80s, uh, I, I, I farm, I cut hay on a lot of his land on his farm, and he's farmed that since he was a kid. And I asked him if he if he ever do you ever remember a summer as wet as this because no one I'd talked to could ever could remember it and and he said yes but it was at least forty years ago and uh, similarly I asked a guy this winter if he ever remembered a winter as warm as this because we had 
we didn't have snow for Christmas. And that's the first time when I was a kid, I think I was like maybe eight or 10 years old. There was one time that I remember we were worried. We were talking about not maybe not getting snow for Christmas here in Northern Maine. And uh, we did end up getting it. So this is the first time, at least that I can remember in my 40 years that, that we didn't have snow for Christmas. Um, but this guy says he remembers back in the seventies that there were, there was patterns like this, um, of, of warm winters. So, so it happens, but I don't think any of us that are around right now are prepared for it necessarily. Any of us that are going to be out there trapping, uh, I, I don't think we're used to it. So I remember a lot of winters where you, you would get a January thaw. Sometimes that January thaw would be a couple days. Sometimes it would be less than 24 hours and it would always freeze back. And that was the only time the whole winter from about Thanksgiving through till the end of March, mid to late March, that it would ever get up above freezing. And that's pretty substantial. That means you have no snow melting and we get a lot of snowfall here. And so you would have you know, just snow building up, building up, three, four feet of snow. Some winters we had uh, over 200 inches of precipitation fall. Uh, actually, funny, Jim talks about the UP of Michigan. Um, I was looking at some weather data for some of those areas in the Upper Peninsula, and that's the only place that I know of in the lower 48 that gets more snow than we do in northern Maine consistently. Like, they get a lot of snow. Now, they do tend to get a little bit warmer and so the snow does tend to melt off more than it does here, but they get like we average, I think it's part of it's because we are colder. The other part is we don't, well, they're both related. We don't have the Great Lakes, so we don't have the lake effect snow and we don't also don't have the lake effect warming, which, which is tied to that snow. So typically we'll get like a hundred or so inches of snowfall in the wintertime where they get parts of the UP, they get like 150 or more that's pretty crazy but we've had winters with 200 inches and uh, I remember a winter a few years ago where um, from about early to mid-November through I think it was the end of March it never got above freezing it was nuts it was just insane it was like you could you could not uh, you could not melt any snow. And then we got, we started getting into April and it was like, man, we got like three feet of ice on the lakes and we've got all this snow. And uh, when's everything going to melt? And finally, I just keep watching the weather and thinking, man, I mean, the days are longer. The sun is stronger, more powerful. That Northwest wind just keeps blowing and keeps blowing. And I remember it was like the 10th of April and I was out there and it was like 10 degrees. And I was out on snowmobile checking beaver traps down here. Uh, along the river and thinking, man, when is this going to start melting? Uh, it always does, does happen. But this year, like Jim said, very, very different. Um, it's ice is sketchy. You got to be safe on the beaver flowages, especially you got to be really careful and watch for open water and watch for thin ice and beaver behavior is going to be much different. They are pretty darn easy to trap when when beavers are stuck in the lodge all winter long. They can't get up off the uh, out through the ice and get onto land and get some fresh food. Uh, but when you do have warm ups like this and the ice melts and you have openings, uh, those beavers are coming out uh, from from under the ice just steadily. 
And so what I've noticed is you you kind of you kind of have to play the weather and and be a bit strategic in how you make your sets because you're only you're going to have limited opportunities. I've I've done this before where I see things start warming up and I see spots where beaver have come out onto land and they love it when they can get out, they're going to get out they're going to go chew on some trees and get some fresh food, something a little different. Their feed pile gets really stale by the end of the winter and slimy and nasty. And so fresh, uh, green food is, is definitely an attract, attractant to beavers. Um, but I've done, I've seen those and then I've set them up only to have, things freeze over and stay frozen for a week or two weeks and then the beaver just never come back out and so you got to look at what the weather forecast is going to do and kind of try to anticipate that in some cases things might have frozen over a little bit you can you can uh, chop a little bit of that thin ice where the beavers are coming out onto dry land and uh, or or maybe crossing over at dams or whatever and uh, and you can you can actually anticipate when you get a warm period coming, chip a little ice, get those things set up, um, get those approaches uh, set up. And then, and then with the weather, as the weather becomes more favorable for them coming out, you'll, you'll be ready to catch them. Uh, But I, I guess what I would do is I would still try to remain focused on the way that I would trap, um, under the ice. And, uh, I, I maybe would focus a little bit less on baited traps because if beaver are regularly coming out from under the ice, they're going to be a little bit uh, harder to to attract a bait because they have access to uh, a lot of food with with uh, with the ice with things not frozen over. And I'd also be a little hesitant maybe to use too much in the way of lure because it's going to be a little bit harder to, because they're kind of halfway between that stage of breaking out and then things are not going to be open enough for them to really start dispersing and, and start becoming, you know, checking out other beavers' territories and that sort of thing. So you can use some of that, maybe switch it up a little bit, but I would still focus the majority of my trapping on uh, blind sets and, and setting in runs, setting near houses, between houses and feed piles and between the house, um, the house and the dam between the house and wherever the beaver are coming up out of the water setting like blind sets parallel to the dam uh beaver are still you know they're they're gonna travel along the surface to check the dam when the when their spots open up but they even during open water they are still going to spend a portion of their time uh traveling down near the bottom um and so you 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 know that hollowed out area that's kind of dug out those channels that are down at the base of the dam, um, basically the deepest spot in most beaver foliages, those beavers are going to be traveling right along bottom there. They, some people call them tunnels or, you know, beaver, they're beaver runs. Um, and, uh, those are still great places for blind sets, bottom edge type sets, even, uh, even when you do have some open water there. So those are just some things to think about, Jim. Hope you have a great trip and have fun regardless. And, Come up with some tips and tricks, and let us know what you find if you what you find that worked uh, in those changing conditions. But uh, it's a great situation to uh, test us as trappers and help us realize that hey, uh, we can't just be stuck in a box. We gotta be constantly adapting and be flexible because uh, things are always changing. Uh, Colton had a question about some beaver. Um, 
seeing some beaver slides. Sorry, Colton, I don't really have time to get into this in detail. I wish I would have got back to you earlier. This was a couple weeks ago. Um, they, based on your um, pictures, it looks like certainly something is coming in and out of the water. Um, I don't know whether that's beaver or otter. I, you really, I'd really have to see more sign in order to decide that I wanted to set something like that up. And so what I'd want to be seeing is any areas where beavers are chewing on sticks and look for white wood or chewed peeled sticks on the shoreline, somewhere in that area. Um, possibly you may have an area where beavers are feeding on other aquatic vegetation and not woody stuff, but I suspect looking based on the pictures you sent, I think... I think they would be chewing on some of those willows and brush um, that's that's around the edge of the water there. So I don't see any of that. So it doesn't look like um, a place where beavers spending a whole lot of time. Sometimes those paths can uh, can be beaten down certain times a year, uh, like in the spring when beaver are really active, and then all summer can go by and you know everything is the vegetation is all green and leafed out and you don't see anything and then come fall you can look at that and it looks like it's fresh sign and it's not really on those beaten down paths um so that is a possibility but you could have beaver there i just maybe spend a little more time looking for sign and trying to confirm that you will see if you spend enough time you'll see chewed areas you'll see chewed sticks um you'll see parts of trees that are not on and you probably will see a caster mound or two if, if beaver are, are set up there. So uh, let me know how you did if you did set this up. But to me, the sign is not strong enough for me to, to definitively say I'd set that. I think uh, you'd be like a guy that I, that's been trapping in my area here uh, recently. I don't know the guy, but I've, I've looked over his sets. I've, and it's places where I've, um, I've gone through and set entrapped in the spring trapped in the fall and i've done and then he's gone in i don't think he even knows i trapped that area uh, but for the last couple of years and made a bunch of sets and he's down there every other day checking for like two hours just i don't know what he's doing but um i i it, you you if you have lots of time and you don't mind that and, and you just you know you you don't mind spending you just want to be outside that's great and you can test things, you can try different sets, but you're going to be putting a lot of sets in places where there aren't a lot of animals, and you're going to catch them eventually because something will travel through there eventually, but your success rate is going to be extremely low, and if you're like me, you'll probably get discouraged. So uh, keep looking for sign. I hope that helps, and uh, let me know how you make out. Okay, we're going to wrap it up, but I wanted to um, I wanted to bring, read something to you guys, just a kind of a shout-out to Steve. Uh, Steve is a trapper uh, not too far from me. He's a, a beaver trapper and a great guy. Seen him at, at the Maine Trapper Association rendezvous in the past and uh, email back and forth a lot. And uh, I, I wanted to uh, give a little shout out by reading this article. But first, I want to shout out the Maine Trappers Association is having a spring rendezvous this year. This is a big change. And uh, I, I don't know that uh, that it works great for my schedule because I'm also a farmer and that's like the peak of our calving season. So that'd be kind of crazy for us. But I, I really think that the guys are, are onto something here and I hope this works out because for the majority of trappers, um, having 
a fall rendezvous just two weeks away from Neil Olson's Trappers Weekend in the same general area, it's very difficult to attract people. And, uh, and I think they, that has shown in, in really low attendance for quite a few years. So, uh, I, I applaud the, uh, directors at the MTA in their efforts to try and uh, do something different. Hey, you know, you, it, it takes a lot of guts to realize when something is not working to, uh, its utmost potential, to sit back and say, hey, this is not ideal. What can we do to improve it? And they are working on something to improve it. And and I think that is a really good thing. So um, I wanted to give them a shout out because, hey, um, this is going to be an opportunity to have a Trappers Association rendezvous uh, in the month of May. It's going to be May 17th through the 19th in Brooks, Maine. So uh, this is, again, this is totally different. They're going to, as far as I understand, they are going to have um, an opportunity for people to sell their spring-caught beavers. That's always been a challenge for spring beavers because it's too late to send them to the auction most years. And uh, by the time you get them put up and everything, uh, there are maybe limited opportunities to sell those. And so there might be an auction there possibly. There might be, uh, it might, or it might be direct sale to fur buyers or whatever. But a good chance to do that, good chance to pick up supplies, and uh, and the weather should be pretty good. That's usually a good time of year to, to be outside. So um, just uh, stay tuned for that if you're interested. I would uh, encourage you to check out the MTA Facebook page, or if you're a member, you've got their newsletter, and they've explained it a little bit there as well. So finally, uh, Trapping Today Magazine. We'll probably talk more about magazine in the future. It was a little project I worked on in the past year and I I, uh, I really enjoyed doing it. I tested it out to see what kind of interest there was. I found that there was a ton of interest in people reading it, but there wasn't a ton of interest in people paying to read it. They wanted to read it for free. So uh, I get it. Um, most of you guys get, you get this podcast for free. You get it, all podcasts for free. You get most of your digital content for free. No one's in the habit of paying for digital content. So uh, I thought I'd give it a shot, but um, I couldn't make it work as far as getting as a, as a paid product, but I think it really could be successful as a free product if I could uh, bring myself to be being an ad salesman and uh, getting a bunch of companies and suppliers and everything else in the trapping industry on board and and going through with a full full on magazine style um, ad uh, advertisement uh, component to this. And I think I think it could work. It may work. I, I haven't decided to to really devote my time to it simply because it, it just uh, it's not in it's not on my list of priorities right now. But it's it it was an awesome experience to do this magazine, and I had to shut it down primarily because it was costing me way too much to uh, to keep it available as a flip book magazine style flip book, and I. Between that and the other software to to keep producing the magazine, I was I was shelling out a hundred dollars a month and I wasn't getting anything back. So after like seven or eight months of that, I was like, man, what am I doing? So I I did end up canceling that. So so the magazine is no longer available. I may be able to upload that as a PDF and put it on the Trapping Today website. It, it'll be a little. It, you'll have to read it as a PDF, which I know is not ideal. It's nice to have like a full page flip style thing, 
uh, especially for like a tablet or for your phone. Um, with a PDF, you're going to have to do some resizing, especially on a phone. It's going to be because it'll be pretty small text and pictures. But uh, we'll probably try to do something just to get some version of it up there eventually. But in the meantime, I had been meaning to uh, provide some of these articles from the magazine to a wider audience uh, because they're no longer available for you to purchase. And uh, I, I, I probably will put these up on the website when, when I get around to it. But for now, I wanted to read one of them to you. And this one, uh, kind of a tribute for, for Steve. And uh, a thank you for uh, him putting this together and writing it. This was featured in issue two of the Trapping Today magazine. And Steve was had some recollections about uh, his trapping experiences with his father who is, has passed and uh, a bunch of the old trap line memories. And, and it got me thinking, got a lot of other people that read it thinking about those trap line memories and, uh, and, and a lot of the reasons other than all the other reasons we trap. You know, there, there are sentimental reasons or family reasons and just, just going out and making memories. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, this article by Steve Clements. In 2003, my dad, Howard Clements, had a stroke, at which time he lost 80% of his eyesight. Knowing that he was no longer able to trap and work in the fur shed inspired him to publish an article for the American Trapper titled, Go Make Some Memories. Recently, I sent a copy to Jeremiah, and he suggested that I write a story for the magazine. What could a small-time trapper from Maine come up with of interest? Then it occurred to me that many stories have already been written in my mind, and could be recalled by reviewing the notes and numbers written on the rafters of my dad's former garage. I would make that trip to our old fur shed to do some reminiscing. With the goal of reading through those numbers, I made that trip to our longtime fur shed. The trip next door to my dad's former garage, saw sharpening shop, fur shed, was short, but encompassed a lifetime of memories. As I entered the shop in the back section of the garage, I couldn't help but think of the hundreds of critters that had been brought through those doors. Dad was a proud fur handler and wanted to make each and every pelt look its very best. As a result, we had received quite a few NAFA top lot certificates through the years. He would express his willingness to do our best by saying that we needed to put a smile on every pelt. Once the pelts were stretched and dried, we'd take them upstairs to hang in cold storage. As I approached the top of the stairs, I could see the year-to-year record still written on the rafters. While reading through the numbers, my mind drifted to a few memories like notching out that tree limb at water level in the stream behind the house and placing a number one lawn spring in the notch, going through that sleepless night of anticipation and having my dad take me down back next morning to find the trap was missing. Dad carried me out so I could pull the chain, my first muskrat. Then there were the times we searched for and found the perfect location for that coyote set. You know, the ones where the wind and crop changes make for the perfect spot. And then we returned to that all-familiar smell. We'd been skunked. That leads me to think of the time a long-time trapping friend and I took our young sons to a late summer ball game in Boston. The late-night bus trip home was interrupted by everyone coughing and gagging as we passed a fresh road-killed skunk. We immediately glanced at each other and both jumped up and yelled, Yeah! We got a lot of strange looks, but it reminded us that trapping season was just around the corner. Still reading the rafters, I saw a note for 1987 where we had set several flowages on opening day, 19 under-ice conibear sets, and returned the next day to find seven consecutive beaver catches. There were a few others that day as well, which filled the fur shed and made for quite a pile of fur waiting to be smiled upon. 
Speaking of consecutive catches, this past fall, I caught a weasel, an otter, a squirrel, a muskrat, and a beaver in consecutive traps. I'm pretty sure I could never have predicted that combination of different species in a row. After reading the entries, I noticed the finished nails still in the beams. Over the years, those nails had hundreds of muskrat pelts hanging from them, which resulted in a great mystery on one particular year. We had a large catch of muskrats, and when bagging them up to ship to Nafa, we noticed a dozen or so were missing. We shipped what we had, and it wasn't until a week later that Dad noticed a pile of doggy doo-doo beside the garage door. We figured a neighborhood dog had pushed open the door and helped himself to a few rats skin chews upstairs. At least they were the two to three dollar ones, not the fifteen dollar rats, 2014-2015. As I concluded my journey, I stopped by the garage door and leaned against the wall where we used to lean our 330 racks, and again the memories came back. I could see us hustling around to construct the frames before it was time to head out on the floages at midnight. Back in the day, our beaver season would begin at midnight on January 1, so our New Year's Eve tradition was to spend the night cutting fur and spruce poles to put together a dozen or so of those ladder-like structures that held our 330s for under-ice sets. Those racks have mostly been replaced by H-stands, but I still make the same ones today. As the, se- as the evening progressed and we were running out of time, Dad would wonder why we waited till the last minute. Guess it wouldn't have been a tradition if we had done them earlier. Dad passed away in 2012. The last entry on those rafters simply reads, Dad's final season. I tapped that rafter and then my heart and smiled, thankful to have the memories. Remember to go make some memories, have fun, and take pride in your fur handling. You owe it to the critter you've harvested to put a smile on every pelt. Thank you, Steve, uh, for that article. Thanks for the memories. And hope you guys out there all appreciated that as well. That is the reason we go trapping um, for a lot of us is to make memories like that. So uh, get out there and have fun and spend time with the family. Get out on the trap line. And with that, guys, it was great to catch up with you. Um, feel free to uh, to send in some questions, comments, feedback, whatever. jrodwood at gmail.com. J-R-O-D w-o-o-d at gmail.com if i get several of those uh and and they make for some good content i'll I'll try and do another one of these episodes before too long uh till next time check out trappingtodaystore.com for your trapping lures and for uh shirts t-shirts coffee mugs and uh, other trapping today related merchandise and keep on talking trapping keep on thinking trapping we'll catch you on the next episode